0: once again, that we can enjoy the salvation that we do have through the person of Christ, not based upon human merit, not based upon human speculation, but based upon your omniscient revelation given to man down through the uh, corridors of time and preserved for us in the pages of Scripture, through which we can know you through the Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, If you'll turn in the New Testament again to Philippians 2, 5-8, I want to kind of finish up this area that we've been studying um, on Christ's kenosis. And we have talked about in the birth of the king, we've talked about the hypostatic union. And we said that that hypostatic union gives the basis for all the rest of the Christology of the New Testament. Failure to get a clear understanding of that hypostatic union uh, is going to lead to all kinds of confusion. And where it starts in is when we get into the life of the king and we begin to look at kenosis To understand kenosis, we have to know the hypostatic union. And you remember back in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, very central package. That's the central section of the New Testament where Paul uh, believed it was necessary under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to reveal this truth about the person of Christ in order that he might be a model for us. Because you'll notice, again, chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 are dealing with just practical church type stuff. And yet, when Paul goes to motivate readers to do those things, he provides this big, hairy, detailed theological statement about the person of Jesus Christ. And we've commented before on this, and you'll see it again and again in the pages of the New Testament. The New Testament does not present ethics as ethics because ethics by the itself is just the law. It's just legalism. It's necessary. We have to have content to what we believe is right and wrong. But knowing the content of what is right and wrong doesn't motivate. And there needs to be spiritual energy, spiritual uh, empowerment. And that is what we call under falls under the category motivation. And what is the source of motivation? Well, it appears that the source of motivation is the theology and the meditating upon these great truths that Paul goes to great lengths at, at telling us. And so again, just if you follow in the text tonight, just to um, root this in our minds, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, his exact form of God actually, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped. But he emptied himself, there's the word kenosis, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even such a death as, as the crucifixion. And the word humble, therefore, shows that at the heart of Jesus' model is humility toward God. And that, in the biblical worldview, is the answer to the Greeks, it's the answer to Stoicism, it's the answer to all the other ethics that are out there, that the fundamental cardinal virtue in the Christian faith is humility before God. And that's the result of repentance. If you think about it, why is repentance again and again in the New Testament? Because it's necessary. Because if we are the natural flesh is, is arrogant. So how do you go from arrogance to humility? You only do that with repentance. So hopefully these these. Uh, By thinking of the scriptures again, as we said over and over, in terms of contrasting the scripture to the world around us, it helps clarify the truths of scripture. We stated the doctrine of kenosis on the top of page 58 of the notes. And expanding on what Paul said, you remember, the best definition is that kenosis does not refer to Christ giving up his attributes, it does not refer to the loss of his attributes. It does not refer to the suspension of his attributes. What it does refer to is the independent use of his divine attributes. When the father, it was okay for the father, for the son to utilize his attributes while on earth, he did. There's no reluctance, there's no diminishing of his attributes. And then you remember last time we went through um, some of the illustrations of the kenosis. We showed his attribute of omniscience. We took two attributes of Christ. Remember, that he, on, on the divine side, He had omniscience. He had omnipotence. And as a human, He had knowledge. And He had human energy. And sometimes He showed human knowledge when He asked for information from people. He didn't use His omniscience. He asked for um, various, various questions to watch responses, to learn from that. Uh, Isaiah 50 said that Jesus Christ had to be awakened each morning in his humanity, to be taught the Word of God. So, again and again, he would show human knowledge. But then, there would be those times when his omniscience would flash forth. And so, what do we make of this? Sometimes he doesn't appear to have omniscience, other times he does. And there's various theories that have risen to account for that. And we've said that the true true theology is that he was not independently using his omniscience. He only used it when it pleased his father, and that was it. And we did the same thing with his omnipotence. Now, beginning in 58, we started to go through the implications of kenosis. We want to um, uh, be sure we understand those because tonight we go to another related doctrine to kenosis. We said that there were three major applications of kenosis. Just as all these truths have many applications, many implications, but kenosis leads to various truths. and One of it in the bottom page 58, top of page 59, is the cardinal virtue of humility. And that is the model. Christ is the model of that. It was the greatest act of the cardinal virtue of humility ever seen in human history or ever will be seen. And please notice that humility is not a characteristic of weakness. This is omnipotent God the Son who is being humble here. So, we've got to get out of our heads that humility before God means diminished strength. doesn't at all. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do completely with the will of God. Arrogance is not powerful. It may think it's that there's a self-delusion, a self-deception that accompanies arrogance that makes one think they're powerful and makes one think of humility as weakness. But you have to be careful about that. That's the world, that's the world impinging upon us. That's not the biblical. That's not true. That's, it's a deception. So we want to remember that in the Christian way of looking at life, that is the cardinal virtue. Not humility before men. It's humility before God it may be humility before men, but that's not the source of it. It's humility before God. Then we said, on page 60, that the second implication of kenosis is that reinforces the concept of divine institutions where you have authoritative relationships. See, humility and authority go together. Humility recognizes authority. And authority, in order to function, requires humility. So these are related, if you think about it. And in our society, the, 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 um, in, in our maturation, the cardinal virtue of humility is to be learned in the home. And this is why the scriptures stress, honor your parents, honor your father, and honor your mother. Well, what's involved in that? It's the first lesson all of us learn about authority and humility and in the Old Testament Deuteronomy 21 and other passages when a young man or young woman became a teenager in a Jewish home in the Old Testament and had not learned humility but instead showed arrogance by abusing their parents by doing their own thing and so on uh, it was a capital offense the parents at 17 and 18 were to take that child down to the gates. And if it proved true in trial before the elders, uh, that child was killed. And God said, that's how you keep evil out of society. That might reduce the population a little bit today. But nevertheless, that was the way God ran it. And we dare not criticize those rules as being primitive. Those rules are not primitive. After all, of all the sin that they had, they did not have anybody shooting kids in schools in ancient Israel. So you can primitivize it all you want to, but they did ha- handle themselves pretty well. The third implication of kenosis is in, on found page 61, where, if you'll turn to John 1.14, it's just an utterly incomprehensible thing that Jesus Christ is the Logos Incarnate. And what we see as a result of His kenosis is that it qualifies Him to be a sympathetic High Priest. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, "...the Word became flesh." There is no other religion on earth where the creator becomes man. The ones who claim like Hinduism has kind of a thing like that, but it's all, that's, that's not a genuine claim because in Hinduism there is no distinction between the creator and creature. See? So what? I mean, God is the rock, God is the bug, or whatever. It doesn't make any difference because there is no difference between the creator and creature. But even on biblical, the so called biblical phase of modern Judaism and Islam, they don't have anything like John chapter 1, verse 14. There's nothing in there like that. God doesn't become flesh. God doesn't walk around. God isn't known face to face. There's no God getting dirt on his feet, dirt under his fingernails. Allah doesn't have dirty fingernails. Allah doesn't have a scar on his body for dying for the people that believe in him. Um, a lot of his believers have scars on them going into holy war. But in, in Christ, he and he alone carries that that distinction. Now, what does this mean, though, practically? Well, it means several things. The first thing, since we're in John, if you turn to John 5.22, this is one of many verses, but this is one of those passages that show that Jesus Christ is a peer judge as well as an empathetic priest. We'll look at these passages in a moment. Because of his genuine humanity, because of his kenosis, because of his successful execution of the Father's plan in his life, in John 5.22, it says, not even the Father judges anyone. Now, isn't that interesting? We studied the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now isn't this interesting? There is a difference in the Trinity. and which of the three persons of the Trinity judges the world? You know, if you've come out of a liturgical church, I'm sure you've you've had liturgy, um, quoting this one of the enthronement psalms, he comes, he comes to judge the quick and the dead, He comes to judge the world, so forth and so on. It's not the Father, It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the Son. And this is the other side of Jesus that the world doesn't really like. What the world would love to have is some meek, weak Jewish carpenter boy. But in the New Testament, it is precisely the Son of God who becomes the judge. Now, why is it? Why is that? It's because Jesus Christ is a peer. It's, It's the closest thing we've got to a trial... By jury, where the the jury has to come out of peers. I know in the military uniform code of military justice, if it's an officer being charged, the jury has to be officers, and if the enlisted person is charged, the jury has to be enlisted. And theoretically, that's the way the court system is supposed to be in our country. Except after the lawyers get through pairing away, it's the stupidest people they can find in the room is put on the jury. But in the New Testament and in the Old. Trial was trial by people who could understand. So what does this tell us about Jesus Christ and kenosis? How does this relate to kenosis? It relates to kenosis because while in the state, in the kenotic state, he had to face life exactly the way we face life. And that means that Jesus Christ can understand. It means that he has empathy with us and he, therefore, can be an accurate judge. There will be no court of appeals beyond Jesus Christ. He is the final court of appeal. can't go to the Father and appeal a judgment of the Son. What does John 5.22 say? It says the Father's not going to judge anything. He's not involved in a final oversight court in case the Son makes a mistake. Then it gets passed to the Father. It's not what we read here. The judgment's finished, final. And stated another more blunt way is that it's Jesus Christ that commits people to hell for eternity. Now, that's a thing about Jesus you don't normally hear. Jesus Christ sends people to hell. That's his job. He's been delegated that job by God the Father. Now, why does he delegate that to the Son? Because the Son has the authority to do that because the sun can pierce through all the smoke and mirrors and get down to the no excuse, sir, type stuff. And nobody's going to pull wool over his eyes. Nobody's going to say, well, you didn't really, you know, you don't understand. Oh, yes, I do understand, It's going to be the answer. Pretty frightening. No escape from this judge, who perfectly understands, isn't going to take baloney talk. Isn't going to take, no, no slick lawyer is going to end run this one. This is the final judgment. Now, conversely, what did we say in the Old Testament when we dealt with Exodus and the Noahic flood? Remember the doctrine we tied with that? Judgment. What? Judgment slash salvation. So here, we see the same thing. We see judgment. That's not me. That's the microphone. (laughs) Um, We see he is peer, judge, and he is an empathetic priest. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. This verse has so much in it and we we just can't spend time on it because this is not exegetical Bible teaching, but In um, chapter 4 of Hebrews, "...since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest..." Now watch it, because here comes kenosis. Here comes the application of kenosis. "...for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. We're going to switch mics here a minute. Okay, let's try this one. In verse 15, how is it that Christ can be a high priest? What does it say? It specifically says, in that in those two clauses, it describes the same idea, Philippians 2, 5-8. Because He has been tested in all things as we. So since He has shared completely in the human situation, that's what makes him a great high priest. What makes him a good judge is what makes him a good priest. And in both cases, the Father here is really not involved in this. This is God the Son. And you can begin to see, after you look at Christ's position now as judge and priest, why those who deny Jesus Christ have got a real problem because it's precisely the person of the Trinity that's being downplayed and denied and compromised that is the center of the whole story here. That's why Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, whoever he may be, in 16 says, practical conclusion, I can come with confidence. Now notice he's not coming with confidence to the throne of judgment. Nobody has confidence there. This is the throne of grace. There are two thrones. There's the throne of judgment and there's the throne of grace. And Christ sits on both of them. And what makes a difference? Well, think about it. What is the cardinal virtue? The virtue is humility. What is humility? Repentance. What is repentance? Conversion from arrogance to submission to his authority. So, that's the act of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So, what changes our, our meeting ground from the throne of judgment to the throne of grace is belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. So, the the other interesting thing about it is in verse 14, just a little tidbit thrown in that's really peripheral to our point tonight. But if you look, observe carefully in verse 14, there's a phrase in there that's quite remarkable. You notice it? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, plural... And it shows you that Jesus Christ had a trajectory when He ascended from the, uh, from the Mount, of Trans- Mount of Ascent east of Jerusalem, really right uh, on uh, the uh, Olive, uh, Mount of Olives uh, is the Mount of Ascension. When He ascended there, it says He not only passed through the atmosphere, the ionosphere, the stratosphere, with His resurrection body, but He passed through multiple heavens to get to wherever this throne of grace is. And the the interesting thing about verse 14 is it's very geometrical. It's stating that in his resurrection body he's he's not omnipresent. Jesus is omnipresent the son, but as the resurrected priest he's not omnipresent, he's located at a particular point. When we uh, dwell in eternity, we will see him. He we won't see him simultaneously every place, but we'll see Him where He is, wherever that is. His resurrection body is located at a point. And so, there's some place, some place, where Jesus Christ is tonight in His resurrection body. Now, how that ties in geometrically, I mean, I'm convinced it has very profound implications for geometry. Geometry. Because skeptics will always, you know, they always put you down as a Christian. Oh, yeah, ha, 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 you stupid Christians. In the Northern Hemisphere, they look up. In the Southern Hemisphere, they look up. So how can they be, you know, how can Jesus be at one point? Well, it's it's, the line of sight must be direction to the throne. So I think that has, talk about curved space or anything else, I think it has very interesting geometrical implications. Is that a person in the Southern Hemisphere can look up, and a person in the Northern Hemisphere can look up and somehow the line of sight converges on this point. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell us to look up. So, this is another one of the little teeny gems in the scripture. Everybody laughs at and pees and thinks it's a big joke. And it's the joke's on them. Because the joke is that obviously this is not Euclidean geometry. The obvious thing is that God has another kind of geometry going on here. So it doesn't affect God just because we believe in Euclidean geometry. I mean, it doesn't mean he runs the universe by it. It just means we're arrogantly thinking he should do it because that's what we understand. Therefore, he should run it by Euclidean techniques. Well, maybe. (laughs) Sorry. But verses 14, 15, and 16 emphasize the same theme of the kenosis. So, we want to move on. At the bottom of page 61, on top of page 62 now, this is where we are. We're summarizing the doctrine of kenosis. Christ is the perfect model of sanctification. He modeled the cardinal virtue of humility toward God. And you might put in the margin because I didn't put it in the notes, but this is why the Bible has four Gospels in it. And we evangelicals sometimes don't do justice to those four Gospels. We're such in a hurry to get to the epistles all the time. 90% of evangelical sermons are out of the epistles. 67% of evangelical sermons ought to be out of the Old Testament. And then about 15 to 20% more ought to be in the Gospels. And then in the epistles. If we're going to balance our teaching and preaching the way God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the text. So, Christ is the perfect model of sanctification. He modeled the cardinal virtue of humility. He showed us what true submission to authority is. And because He had to utilize the filling of the Spirit in His faith walk, He has become an emphatic intercessor intercessor for us with His Father. And by the way, that's another point that I, I I skipped when we were in Hebrews 4 just a few minutes ago. What does a priest do? A priest goes to God on behalf of the people. A priest makes intercession for the people. A priest carries on a conversation rationally with God. So here's a priest who is talking to God. In this case, the Son talking to the Father, and He's arguing our case and presenting our case. And you begin to see a connection here with kenosis. What do you suppose Jesus Christ does when He prays for us? One of the things. He's explaining to the Father our problem. Because as one who is God and man, he knows by personal experience what we're like. So, do you think that makes him an effective intercessor? Yeah, because he understands us. So, he has become an empathetic intercessor for us with his Father. Like a test pilot puts a new airplane through its paces beyond the envelope of normal everyday flight, Jesus Christ demonstrated the Christian life perfectly in every area beyond levels we are likely to experience. Now we move to this doctrine of impeccability. And this is another doctrine that presumes we know hypostatic union. Because if we don't know the hypostatic union, we're lost again. So let's move now to this impeccability thing. Let's look at the word first, the vocabulary word, impeccable. What does it mean? It means without fault. Impeccability is Christ's perfection. And there's a problem with this. So, if you'll follow me in the notes, we won't look up all these verses, but I, I think if you have been in the Bible any length of time, you, you're well aware of the content of these It's not I'm trying to avoid them. It's just in the interest of time tonight, we're going to go pretty fast through this. That Christ was morally perfect is central to the Christian faith and one repeatedly mentioned in the New Testament. The following verses. Now, since uh, we've been in Hebrews, we'll look at Hebrews 4:14. Let's pass through that. Let us hold that we have a great high priest. So the point is, a priest had to be what in order to appear in the Old Testament. Think of how a Jew would have thought. He had to be cleansed. He had to be morally perfect to walk in and survive the righteousness of God, to dare to walk into God's presence. Nevertheless, many other verses seem to show Christ behaving in a fashion that today is considered as rude, impolite, and even eccentric. The Gospel of Matthew particularly notes this behavior. And by the way, I think that's because, again, what was Matthew's background? Who was the guy that knew political speak? It was Matthew? Jesus calls his opponents snakes, hypocrites, adulterers, children of hell and whitewashed gravestones. Not exactly what you would find in how to win friends and influence people. In spite of his own teaching not to call people fools in Matthew 5:22, Jesus calls his enemies fools in Matthew 23. In Mark 11, Jesus curses a defenseless fig tree. In Matthew 15.26, He calls a seeking Gentile woman a dog. At least twice, He appears abrupt with His own mother, Matthew 12 and John 2. In Matthew 8.21, Jesus is harsh toward traditional Jewish family loyalties. And in John 2, He assaults businessmen, damages their wares, and blocks public access. Now, is this the person with perfect life? I mean, he's not going to be considered a person of the perfect life today. Not by today's standards. Jesus does not living a perfect life. And says the kind of things he says, physically assaults people, and really almost at that point blocks public access. I mean, think of the abortion clinic issue now. So what what how do we reconcile this? Now let's let's Think about this a minute. Because we as Christians have got to learn that this is the kind of stuff, and I'm putting it in here in all its bluntness, because it's the kind of stuff that somebody's going to nail you with someday. If you haven't already had it dumped on you. Somebody who's slick enough to have read the New Testament is going to challenge you. And it may be out in the store, it may be at work, it may be in your own family. So what do you do when somebody trots this stuff out? What are you going to do? Go into shock, faint, or do what? What are we to been taught to do? We've got to think back through something here. This is accurate. Is this inaccurate, first of all? No. This is accurate data from the Bible. So, if it's accurate data from the Bible, then since God is rationally consistent, there must be a, some sort of solution to this. Now, we personally may not be aware of it yet, but there's, it's a solution out there. Now think about this for a minute. A person who objects to this sort of thing, who would object to the behavior of Jesus Christ, doing these things and saying these kinds of things, I mean, you can understand how people would object to this. I mean, you can think of some nice, uh, very ethical, gentle, well-cultured people that are among your personal acquaintances or your family circle that would, would just really say... If they could see... Of course, the problem is, thankfully, they don't read the Bible, so they're not aware of this. But if they did read the Bible, or if there was an honest Hollywood producer who produced the Lord Jesus Christ saying these things and doing these things, I think a lot of people would be genuinely shocked. And they would certainly say to themselves, if not to us, in our hearing, they would certainly be saying to themselves in their own heart, "Wow." I'm not so sure that I think so much of Jesus now. Not after seeing this. Well, what do we do now? What, what's, what's happening here is judgments are being passed as to what? A standard of behavior. Now think about this for a minute. If Jesus is the standard and this is what he's doing and we're condemning him by another standard, what does this tell us? Let's take this logically one step at a time. It tells us that our standards by which we are judging don't look too good. It ought to start wheels turning in our minds about the the standards that we use to judge everyday behavior. Are they right? Maybe they aren't right. If those standards turn out to fault Jesus and he's the standard, then our standards must be wrong. And I work with instrumentation all the time. And we have such a thing called calibration. And when you're calibrating a thermometer or a barometer or any kind of sensor, one of the rules is that you always have to calibrate it with an instrument at least 10 times more accurate than the one you're working with. On all the way back to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST standard down here in Maryland. And so if I have a thermometer and I think it's right, I mean, good night, I've used this thermometer, everything else is, I'm very comfortable with it. And I start saying, well, let me just check it against the standard. And I find it's uh, 0.8 degrees Celsius off. Now what I'm going to say, well, gee, I'm comfortable with this. Throw out the standard. Standard must be wrong. I don't do that. We wouldn't do that. Well, what do we do every time we see stuff like this in the Scripture? Inwardly, there's a tendency to chuck it inwardly there's a tendency to impose a standard that we carry around with us, that we've socially learned, we've become culturally conditioned to it, and we're using that as a standard to evaluate Jesus. And I say the problem is exactly opposite. If our standard condemns Jesus, then our standard is wrong. Now let me extend the logic a little further. Watch the next paragraph. Before someone naively talks about being Christ-like, he ought to explain this apparent discrepancy between Jesus' claimed sinlessness and his reported behavior. Modern observers, so heavily conditioned by present day psychological models of ideal personality, are upset by this discrepancy. Psychologist Paul Vitz, who, by the way, is a great Christian god, became Christian later in life, taught psychology for many years at New York University. A lot of nuts around New York, so he had God business. Psychologist Paul Witts is right when he notes, quote, "...certainly Jesus never lived nor advocated a life that would qualify by today's standards as self-actualized." The problem, however, doesn't lie with Jesus. It lies with the present-day personality theories. Witts notes in his book the anti-biblical assumptions behind these modern and mostly existentialist theories. Describing Jesus' sinless but disturbing personality, Carl Adam writes, from a purely psychological point of view, this humanity was characterized by an enormously powerful will. See, Jesus was humble toward God. But in His life, His will was anything but weak. It was precisely because he submitted to the Father and was certain, therefore, of what the Father wanted him to do and that he did it. That comes off not weak. That comes off the strength. An enormously powerful will. Jesus knew what he wanted. He knew it as no one else did. In his entire public ministry, we cannot point to a single moment when he pauses to consider or where he reflects or where he takes back any word or deed. Please notice that, underline it and circle it, because there's another little tidbit about the person of Jesus and these obnoxious unbelievers who always like to talk about Jesus, the good and gentle Jesus. Well, where the good and gentle Jesus ever t- admit he made a mistake? Where's the good and gentle Jesus ever taking back anything? Ever apologizing for anything? Uh, see, Jesus is somebody special. You can't categorize him with all the rest of the good, nice people. He either is who he claimed to be, or he, he's a liar and a lunatic. He doesn't let you be in that comfort zone. He pulls you out. From the beginning, he appears as a finished mature man. Now, the next paragraph, you follow me through because this has important implication today in our institutions. Jesus' personality is disturbing because it is perfectly holy and in active contact with the unholy world. Being Christ-like is not necessarily, therefore, being conformed to what modern psychological theory regards as the ideal or healthiest personality. For this reason, Christian psychologists ought to develop new standards for the model personality based not upon man's speculation or worse, statistical distributions, but upon the objective revelation of Christ. Would Christ, for example, be hired by a modern corporation which filtered job applicants on the basis of what modern theories consider mentally healthy personality? And institutions and corporations do this. They have filtering exams. I know one of them, a very famous national exam that's, that used to be given 20 years ago by a lot of corporations. And one of the, if you were an evangelical Christian and you really let your beliefs hang out while you were answering these questions, uh, you, you got downgraded. In fact, I think as I remember, there were 13 points you lost just if you believed that prayer was answered. Now, this is what idiot corporations use. That's because it's run by unbelievers. Institutional fools. And what they do is they inscripturate their foolishness into every company policy. And this isn't a good example of it. Jesus would flunk some of these personality profiles. He really would. Now, what's the problem then? gets back to how we started this series. Light has come into the world. And why is it that men don't admit to Jesus Christ? Because of the darkness of the world. Because men love darkness rather than light and neither comes to the light lest their deeds be reproved. Why don't the psychologists come to Jesus and uh, and submit and say he is the model personality? Because men love darkness rather than light lest their deeds be reproved. Are we saying necessarily killing people, bad deeds? Not necessarily. It could be good deeds done out of self-righteousness the self-actualized personality. Now think about it, that is a very arrogant statement. Self-actualized personality. I do it my way. That's the story. That's an institutionalization of the virtue of arrogance and independence. and the, the exact opposite of humility before the Creator. So, no wonder then that many of these personality pro not saying all of them, but many of these personality profiles are really weird and far out. Even though they can be done and, 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 and composed by PhDs by the ton. I mean, many of these uh, profiles that I'm talking about have been, they weren't stupid people that made them. A lot of work went into them thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of research. But the problem is what was the research? The research was statistical looking at a group of a thousand people and saying, who were the people that excelled? Well, what do you mean by excel? Oh, well. See, now, you're, now what's happening to the guy that designed the questionnaire for the statistical study? He's got his definition of excel. Where did he get that definition of his worldview? And so now the worldview gets embedded into the definitions of the questionnaire. So now what about the statistical results from the questionnaire? They simply are numbers that reflect. And who are you sampling, by the way, in any questionnaire? You sample Adam before the fall? See part of the statistical sample? No. Are we sampling Jesus? No. Well, now it seems to me we've excluded the two guys who were... One was perfect, created originally. The other guy was the God-man-savior, is perfectly righteous, and you've excluded them from the statistical study. So now what do we have left to, to put in... Just, make statistics about fallen creatures so now what does the norm mean in the center of the belshade curve it means the average of fallen statistical sinners that's the average sinner and then we, sh- we turn around build a profile off the belshade curve that really is measuring the statistical median of sin and say well Jesus doesn't fit the profile well no gain guess why so this is an example of how, how subtle this is. And people can lose their jobs by this. You can lose your promotions by this sort of stuff. It has nothing to do with you personally. It has to do with the foolishness of the institution that you work for. Now let's state the doctrine of impeccability. To state the doctrine of impeccability... One has to examine two expressions. The theologians expressed these back in the uh, uh, days when Latin was used as the language of precision. So we're going to look at a little Latin here. One expression is not able to sin. And you'll see the Latin word non posi peccari," Latin infinitive. And two, able not to sin, posi non peccari." Now, let's stop right there. Let's look at these two things. Let's look at the language very carefully. Not able to sin and able not to sin. What's the difference between these two phrases? Strong difference exists. The first one is perfection that can never fall. Yes? Not able to sin. The second one is leaves you uncertain, doesn't it? Persons able not to sin, but maybe they might. Now clearly Adam was statement two at the point of his creation. Okay? Statement two unquestionably applies to Adam. Does statement two also apply to Jesus, insofar as it says the truth? Yes. Was Jesus able not to sin? Sure he was. But here's the question. Does state, statement one apply to Jesus? And if statement one applies to Jesus, what does that do to the reality of temptation? So here's created create a big debate in Christian circles. And we want to proceed carefully here. Because I said, you can't understand kenosis and impeccability if you don't understand what? First, hypostatic union. So we've got to remember, let's not be sucked into a, a blind path here. We've got to, however, we deal with this thing, we've got to remember who it is we're dealing with. The hypostatic union, Jesus is God as well as man. Does statement one apply to God? You bet. All right, then, which of the two is most clearly expresses the God man? Now, you see the problem? That's why theologians have a problem with this. If Jesus Christ was tempted and He wasn't able to sin, how could He be tempted? And yet we have to adhere that statement one somehow does apply to Jesus because He is God. So as God, statement one applies to Him. As man, statement two applies to Him. How do we work these two together? Bottom of page 63. 63. Good Reformed theologians have taken both sides of this question. Charles Hodge, for example, thought that Statement 2 must apply to Christ and not Statement 1 because he held that it must be possible for one to fall or sin in order to ensure that the temptation be real. Now, why do you suppose they're concerned about the temptations of Jesus being real? Because of kenosis. How could he... Not be genuinely tempted and come out as our sympathetic high priest. He was tempted in all points as we are. So to protect, you see, this is how doctrines relate. It's like a, you know, a sweater, you get rid of one of the pieces of yarn and the thing starts unraveling here. So you've got to be careful. One doctrine protects another doctrine. You don't ever take a doctrine by itself. Ultimately, when you deal with one doctrine, you're going to deal with all doctrines. ...man to sin without fracturing the hypostatic union in the sovereign plan of God. So the Hodge-Shed discussion uh, is, is, is critical to think this thing through. Now, let's work through this a minute, and then we'll, we'll come out on the bottom, hopefully, tonight, with some sort of resolution with this. Hodge was obviously trying to protect human responsibility. Was he not? The reality of temptation, Yes. Shed was focusing on divine sovereignty. The problem of resolving these true truths arises again and again in biblical thought. In the next chapter, we encounter the dilemma again. In the fall, we're going to deal with for whom did Christ die? Did Christ die for every man or did Christ die for the elect only? If Christ saves and His death doesn't apply to the non-Christian, then did He really die for the non-Christian? Or did He? And to get involved in all that, we're going to have to come right back to the same problem here. All these problems come right back to this thing, human responsibility and divine sovereignty. To clarify matters, we must dig a little deeper into the language and logic being used to discuss the question, using our knowledge of the creator-creature distinction and the trinity. Always check on how a question is asked before you try to answer it. The biblical question, first of all, this is a clarification of the language first, before we get to the logic. Careful about alien ideas that we bring into our conversation because the vocabulary we are using, we have learned out there in the world system. We bring it into a discussion and all of a sudden we realize, oops, we brought in through our language alien thoughts to Scripture. So let's be careful of something. Bib- the biblical question does not involve abstract categories like free will and determinism. Free will being you do what you want to, determinism is you're biologically determined, that sort of thing. To phrase the question as though free will and determinism are locked in mortal combat implies that both categories are universal and both apply to all existence, including the creator and the creature, in the same way. Saying that, however, puts the speaker solidly in the pagan camp, believing in the continuity of being. You can't have a category that's identical to God and man to say that you violate the creator-creature distinction. The question, rather, is how do the analogous qualities of the creator's choice, that is, his sovereignty, and the creature's choice, human responsibility, how do those two coexist? One expresses the incomprehensible nature of God, divine sovereignty, and the other describes human design, human responsibility. To avoid drifting into the logical contradiction of free will versus determinism, it is better to use the terms divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The adjectives divine and human remind us of the fundamental creator creature distinction that underlies all of our experience. Now, as un- watch this flow now. As undiminished deity, we know that from the hypostatic union, Jesus possessed what? Attribute, the divine attribute of sovereignty. So, He possessed divine sovereignty. But He was also true humanity. As true humanity, He possessed human responsibility. In the first statement above now, now watch it. Now, let's look at this statement. If these two did apply to Jesus, for the sake of argument, we're going to say they do. Not able to sin reflects God's unchanging holiness that God is not able to sin. He's not able to lie. He's not able to sin. And Jesus Christ was God. So, if statement one applies to Jesus in His divine sovereignty what happens to this little vocabulary word? And is this little vocabulary word in statement one meaning the same thing as a vocabulary word in statement two? Watch it here. This is where you can get really screwed up because you don't notice things happening and we don't consciously bring into our vocabulary and our logic and our discussions to create a creature distinction. So watch what we're saying. In the first statement, not able to sin... The first statement above, not able to sin, refers to what? The uncreated divine nature. The verb able here takes on meaning from what? From the divine side. God is not able. In the second statement, able not to sin, refers to the created human nature. In this statement, the verb able takes on meaning from human experience. Because of the hypostatic union, both must apply to Jesus Christ. The verb able, therefore, has different meanings in the two statements. Therefore, there is no logical contradiction. Jesus was constrained. John 5.19 says, I can only do what I see my Father doing. And yet in John 8, He says, I make you free. And if you are free, you are free indeed. So Jesus is at once constrained and free. So why there appears to be a contradiction is because we've loaded those two verbs with the identical meaning. We're using Aristotelian categories in our thinking. And we've said able means the same thing in statement one as it means in statement two. Now, it can't be. Why can't it be? If this refers to Jesus' deity, it means that God's nature and character can never sin. And we know this from the the statement repeatedly in Scripture. Okay, but Abel in this case is a description of what? The essence of God. The essence of the Creator. It labels his incomprehensible being. But this verb here, when it's talking about Christ and his humanity, is talking about the creature capacity. Capacity for choice, capacity for so, on, a, a, a response. So, since the word able does not have the same meaning in statement one and two, you can't show that there's a contradiction between them. You cannot understand the how they tied together, but if we understood how we tied together, then statement one would not be incomprehensible. And if statement one were comprehensible, then it would say that we in our finite mind have totally enveloped our God. And that is a denial of the faith. So, if this leaves you on the prongs of a dilemma and you feel, well, gee, it hasn't totally resolved, that's because you know what you're feeling? You're feeling the incomprehensibility of God. Right at that point. And this is where things like uh, disasters in life, why the problem of evil will always come up like this and it, it leaves you you're feeling like you're, you've got two feet here and, and they're both kind of on different platforms and it's a little uncomfortable but it's not logically incoherent the unbeliever loves to say this is a logical contradiction that's not true that is not a correct statement that is not a logical statement that is an irrational label because you can't you know, in order to show a contradiction between these you've got to show the identity of the language you can't. you haven't done that and you're not able to do it. So you can't demonstrate this as a contradiction. But on the other hand, we can't get the two statements together to fully understand how they interplay. So let's go on then. Genuine temptation, therefore, does not require the possibility of failure. Now here's where I tried to get into the meaning of these words a little bit. So if you'll follow with me word by word, it's my uh, attempt to try to state something here. Genuine temptation does not require the possibility of failure if, by possibility of failure, we mean that history is indeterminate, that its final outcome is ultimately the result of creature choices, atomic motions, and a plethora of other causes. If instead we mean, by the possibility of failure, an unknown piece of the overall plan of the Creator, then temptation is adequately pictured. In other words, you can walk into a situation. Let's take Jesus in Gethsemane for a clear picture of this. He goes into Gethsemane. He knows what's going to happen. The cross is right there. Jesus has a choice. Right up to the last minute of the cross, he has a choice, doesn't he? And you know that it's a choice because what is he praying about? Disciples are all sacked out, but what is he praying about? Let this cup pass from me, does it? Do you get the impression it bothers Jesus? Yeah. Does he is he thrilled about this? I wouldn't say so. He's bringing it to prayer. As a human being, in his humanity, he's able not to sin. He's able to choose to go to be with the Father. He's able to choose the will of God for him. Now, you're an outside observer, and you're watching Jesus pray in the garden. And you're saying, is he going to make it or not? Right? But now, let's suppose there's two of you. One of you is a biblical observer and the other one is a non-biblical observer, pagan, pagan thinker. The pagan thinker looks at Jesus and says, gee, history is really uncertain. It's a throw of the dice. Nobody, not even Zeus, knows what's going to finally come about, because I mean, after all, I mean the gods fight among themselves in Mount Olympus, uh, they can't get together. so I know that the gods don't know for sure. they know more than I do. I mean I have an IQ of 90, and maybe that might be an IQ. Zeus might have an IQ of 900, but the problem still is he can flunk. So the pagan sits there all this time thinking of history as a roll of the dice. So what can he do? He can only estimate based on Jesus' past character, how it's going to come out, but not really sure how it's going to come out. And he's in furthermore saying, no one else knows how it comes out, including Jesus. See the hidden implication? There is no total knowledge here. It's just a roll of the dice. Now he thinks that's how he's guaranteeing freedom of choice. He thinks the only way to guarantee freedom of choice is to have total uncertainty in history. So he sits there... Wondering which way the dice gonna go. Which way is the dice gonna go? Gee, I want Zeus and everybody else gathers on, on the Mount of Olives to find out. All the gods and goddesses come to see, because none of them, whether they have a nine hundred IQ or a ninety IQ, can can tell what's gonna happen. Because nobody knows what's gonna happen. That's indeterminate history. Over here we have a biblical observer. He looks and he doesn't have any more information than the pagan, does he? He doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but what's the difference? The difference is he knows the one who does know what's going to happen. He knows that, no, my God is not a Zeus and Mount Olympus with a 900 IQ. My God is the creator of the universe, who's planned this from all eternity. And while I don't know what it's going to be like, I know that he knows. I know there's a perfect plan here. And, of course, as the biblical observer become more and more informed, he realizes this is the Son of God and the Son of Man. There's going to be no failure here. So he knows the outcome is guaranteed. It's not a roll of the dice. So you see, you can come to the same thing. It gets back to presuppositions again. Both these observers are looking at exactly the same data. And they're coming to wildly different, exaggeratedly different conclusions. So, That's why when we discuss the temptation issue and the reality of temptation, the doctrine of impeccability, we've got to discipline ourselves to approach this thing out of a biblical perspective in every area. We've got to watch out for slippery Aristotelian logic that leaks into our thinking that we're so used to using day after day after day after day. And all of a sudden it's failing us here. So we want to be careful. This is heavy stuff. But what we're saying is that in the case of Jesus Christ... Now, if you don't mind us running over two or three minutes here because I want to finish down to that diagram. In the case of Jesus Christ, however, we must further ask about whether temptation under the not able to sin condition is somehow less of a problem than temptation is for fallen being like ourselves. Did Jesus, in other words, not really enter into the struggles we face B.F. Westcott, who lived in the 19th century along with Hotch and Shedd, gives us insight into what it means for a sinless being to be tempted. His classic commentary in the Epistle of Hebrews puts the matter well. Sympathy with a sinner in this trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know it's in full intensity. Following Westcott, one can imagine a temptation pressure Pictured in figure four, which rises with a resistance to the temptation. The pressure is relieved when one gives in and sins. Line B. A sinless creature such as Jesus never does give in and under the sovereign plan of God might continue to experience the temptation and experience an intensity never encountered by a creature who sins. Line A. The doctrine of impeccability, therefore, states that Jesus Christ, though genuinely tempted beyond anything any other creature ever experienced, could not sin. As the One having true humanity, and undiminished deity, coexisting in one person forever, Christ would always be victorious, even though canonic, during His life on earth. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son, incomprehensible though He is, and will remain so. That's exactly why we worship. We worship You because our hearts know that there is embedded in this screen of incomprehensibility a rational plan that we can trust that will work out in every perfect detail. So our confidence cannot be in our own perceptions, in our own conceptions of where history is going, but it must be rooted upon the words that You have told us and the character that You have in back of those words to vindicate them and justify them. We pray, therefore, our faith would be strengthened in Your Word and we would look continually upward to You as our Savior so adequately and completely modeled. Amen. Well, if that didn't strain a few brains, uh, I don't know what will. Um are there any um does somebody want to start I'm sure there's some questions about what went on here tonight. Um yes. I,
1: I I don't I, I don't know. Um I'm still wrestling with that I the have kind of conclusions just doesn't just doesn't get there to the, to the whole conclusion again, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. Um I see clearly the divine nature completely not the Period understood. The human nature is able to sin. Okay? Um, and yes, I know we have the duality of Christ and, and the soul thing, so we're certainly wrestling. Mm-hmm. But I can't get to where he could not sin in his humanity. And yes, I realize that if he did sin, he would violate the whole plan of God. And all of humanity, all of creation would probably have collapsed and imploded on that. Mm-hmm. I can live with that, but I
0: can't get to where you're we saying you couldn't have sinned. Okay. Uh that's That's fine. That's, that's fine. Wade is, is wrestling like I'm sure everybody else is. Is y- You you understand the implications if Jesus did sin, uh, shattering the plan of God and, and, and uh, rupturing the hypostatic union and everything else. The question gets back to What had God sovereignly planned here? Um, Is it absolutely necessary? We'll we'll see this as an implication of uh, impeccability two weeks from tonight. Um, The coexistence... uh, Let let me go out on another area that might help us think this through. In answer to the question of evil, Christians often give the answer that God had to allow sin in order to demonstrate the existence of free will. That somehow, um, free will in order to be seen has to be seen as being exercised over to the negative side as well as the positive side. I do not believe that's a complete answer. In fact, I don't even think it's a biblical answer. I don't believe that God had to allow the fall in order to demonstrate free will or human responsibility. Jesus, um, and, and another example of this is once we have the period of history called the probationary period, the period of grace between the fall and the judgment, free will isn't done away with in heaven. Free will is not done away with today among the angels that serve God that are loyal. You can't deny, you can't say that God, oh well, he said, golly, uh, I let them uh, choose four against me and now I've reprogrammed their computers, and so now they are robotically set never to fall. And yet, it is in the plan of God that none will. It is in the plan of God that eternity is absolutely secure and free from all fall. Now, how does he accomplish this? How is this pulled off so that sin is guaranteed forever and ever and ever, never, ever to be a threat without at the same time somehow tampering with the volition of the people that dwell in the kingdom of God for all eternity? Well, somehow it happens, which gets back to a deeper question that viewed from God's plan and this is the way you have to think about it viewed from God's plan it was not possible for Jesus Christ and his humanity to fall God from all eternity planned the cross planned the salvation act of the cross always as part and parcel this, this plan of Jesus because after all what was the righteousness that we share it's the righteousness he generated in his life so as the God man so then that means that all the time he was facing these temptations, they were genuine temptations. Uh, certainly in Matthew 4, when he's talking to Satan. They were genuine temptations. But what we're saying is the existence of the temptation does not require as its corollary a threat inside the plan of God. A sort of that once God decrees history to move in a certain direction, there's a certainty to the decree, because he's decreed it. And that's why I'm saying, what we're dealing with here is hard, because it's the same thing that we run into all across the board. It's just tonight, when you get into the person of Christ, because he's God and man together, it it comes out more clearly. But it's not any different than, for example... um, Why is it some people believe and some people don't? Why is it that Satan fell? Well, ultimately the the answer goes back to the fact because God established history under his decree that way. Period. Because the only alternative you have to that view is what I said. It's the pagan view. That history is a set of marvels. There is absolutely no plan whatsoever to history. You can't have half a plan you either have marbles or you have a plan. You, you either have sovereignty or you don't.
1: But then you get all balled up uh, and it given responsibility.
0: Um, Not if you biblically... That question is, the question is... does that the Hebrew's m-
1: argument against that is, you know, we're still accountable, even though uh, that, that's yes. as wired in yes. that sense. But, you know, um, we're getting back into almost where you have to take an existential step of faith that's you know, kind of breaking a little bit of the rationality. I'm challenging rationality here, I guess. Yeah. Okay, well, here's where... Yes, Debbie, excuse me. I'm, I just, I'm wondering if maybe the words that are being used make it to cry to... Yes. prevents him from being able to do anything that's going to injure God and would even put his own life on the line to protect that child. So actually it almost being his character is is the thing that makes it impossible. He would have to violate his own character to sin
0: rather than it being the inability to Yeah, uh, Debbie is pointing out that the language in here, you see, you can't use words without automatically importing meaning that come in with the words. There's no such thing as a neutral word. And that's what's going on in this discussion. And what I tried to show there was that Jesus Christ can't be divided in half and half. See, remember this statement one and statement two. And the problem is you have to Uh, Both of them have to apply to the one person. What does the hypostatic union say? It says, undiminished deity is united in one person without confusion forever. So so you can't have... One of the other statements has to apply here as the ultimate statement, as the ultimate statement about what's going on. And all Hodge is saying, all Shed is saying is that if you negate one what you have done is that you have slighted the deity of Christ. Because the one person is God and is man. And so, what you're dealing with here is, going back to what Debbie's saying, is that this Abel, this one right here, probably carries with it so much baggage, the way we use it in our everyday language. That it's distorting our thinking about what that statement one is saying. Debbie gave the illustration of a father who is perfectly capable of physically assaulting his child, and yet he loves the child, and it's certain he will not do it. That's the sort of thing that's meant by this right here. Because God has this character, he's not able to sin, never wants to sin. But because Jesus Christ is one person, not two, He shares both the divine nature and the human nature. And under the plan of God, as He is sanctified, He loves the Father with all His heart. There's not any sin in Him. And He loves the Father with all His heart, and that is a finite reflection in His humanity, of His infinite holiness. And it's inconceivable that His infinite holiness He would ever sin. And the problem is you've got this linkage in one person forever. So that's what what the theologians are dealing with on the shed side of the controversy. What they're trying to do is to show the impossibility of the destruction of the sovereign plan of God which is rooted not in arbitrary sovereignty like some hyper-Calvinist thing. It's rooted in the very character and being of God. Now, Wade pointed out that he feels right now, and I'm sure all of us have this tension, he feels right now that he wants to break break rationality and make an existential decision. Okay? Now, that's very much... The kind of atmosphere we all have lived in for the past us our society for the past hundred years. That would never have been occurred to Wade, never occurred to any of us in this room if we had lived in America in seventeen eighty or sixteen ninety. That's a statement that's a very twentieth century statement. I, I feel like I gotta break out of rationality and and just choose. Now, why, that, why we feel that way isn't because of some inherent view of how we think. It's because of a particular way we have been taught to think. And it gets back to the fact that when we can't demonstrate that sentence A and sentence B fit together, we can demonstrate they don't conflict, but we can't demonstrate they go together. Let me give you a neutral illustration of the same kind of thing so it's not theological for a minute. For years and years and years, for centuries, men in Western uh, history were brought up on Euclid. And if you remember from high school, Euclid had his postulates, had his axioms at the beginning of the book in plane geometry. And one of those axioms was the parallel line axiom. What was the parallel line axiom? It was that if I have a line and a point outside the line, then I can draw one and only one parallel line through that point. Euclid said, that's the axiom. And that, along with the other axioms, you remember we built theorems and corollaries and you built up geometry. Everything was rational. Everything was logically consistent. However, what then happened was that somebody very perceptively in the 19th century noted that that's not axiomatic. That one and only one parallel line can be drawn through a point outside of, one, outside of a line. And if you want a good example of it in 3D, it's a sphere. You, can't, you can draw different lines through that point in a sphere. So the point that... that that's when non-Euclidean geometry started in the 19th century. But they were logically consistent. And so then the mathematicians are sitting here going like this, like we are tonight, saying that I've got Euclidean geometries that are perfectly... I mean, guys sweat and do theses to make sure that theorems follow from that. Everything is rational over here in the Euclidean camp. But everything's rational over here in the non-Euclidean camp. So now which one fits the real scene? You know, we don't know today. Nobody knows. And it's that sort of dilemma that's come up with... The human thinking. So, so let me follow this through. What, what has happened is that people are retreating from the use of reason and leaping in the dark and making all kinds of decisions. They're, they're fatigued. Um, they're depressed. This is an intellectual form of depression. And they just don't bother me. I just want to choose. Gotta live. Come on, I've got time for all this stuff. Um and that's the climate that's happened in the last 100, 200 years. And the reason we feel that is because back when, when all this existential stuff was going on, what we were doing in our culture was we were doing exactly what the pagans had done prior to bouncing off the Bible in the, in the Roman day, days of the Roman Empire when the Gospel first went out into what we call Western Europe. What has happened is that everybody's forgotten... The fact is that there is rationality, hyper-rationality in God. So while I can... He certainly knows, Euclidean and non-Euclidean, he knows which one fits. The problem is I'm finite and I don't have enough data to decide. But because I don't have enough data to decide doesn't mean I break out of rationality and go irrational. If I have what? Words, what if I'm sitting here and I've got a dilemma... I can, I can say I stay and I try to work it out rationally or I go over here and I throw away it and I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I just choose. That's existentialism. Now, if when, I, when I get depressed, this is genuine, by the way. This Euclidean, non-Euclidean thing and that limits of rationality that's very real. That can be shown to be proved. So, faced with the destruction over here, I start walking in this direction. But you see, the difference between walking in this direction as a pagan, and I get out here and I just choose what I do biblically, and we all do this if we think about it. If we are born again, and we have a heart for God, we are automatically doing this, we're just not thinking about it. When we're prompted by the Spirit, we're doing this. And that is, when you face an evil situation, and you don't have have an explanation for it and your heart cries out for an explanation for it, what do you do as a Christian? Do you just say, well, I don't know what it is. So I must not have a reason. There's no reason to this. No reason for my sickness. Now, none of us act that way. What do we do? We fall back on the fact that He knows. Now, what are we doing rationally at that point, and why is that decision not a violation of reason? That is not an existential decision. Modern theologians are wrong. That's not. That's completely different from what's going on over here. In this case, there is no reason in me or anywhere. That's existentialism. That rationality... I see it doesn't exist in me. I see it doesn't exist in you. I see it doesn't exist in the human race. And therefore, I extrapolate and say that it, there's no reason anywhere. No purpose anywhere. And you see what I've done? I've universalized out of my finite experience. I made a universal. And what is the universal? That there's no reason, no purpose, nowhere, anything. Why? Because I can't find it in here. Now, what are do we doing as biblical Christians? We're saying, yeah, we, we agree with you, Mr. Pagan. We've come to the end of our rationality also. We can't find meaning and purpose in here either. But we know where to go to find it. We're not universalizing our frustration and throwing a philosophic tantrum and throwing wind, uh, rationality out the back door. What we're doing is realizing that what we call reason is part of His image in me. And if I want to embed and put a foundation under this imagery that I have, this finite version, I go to the infinite version which is the foundation of it. And what is that? God's omniscience. The fact that I know He has a plan. And it is frankly inaccessible to me. Good example, Job. Job deals with the thing. You get in the back end of the book of Job and does God ever tell Job why? Why? He never does that. But does Job break out of reason and go existential? Now, some people think he does. But he doesn't. What does he rationally conclude in chapter 40? I have spoken words without knowledge. That's a rational statement. It's describing something. I have spoken words without knowledge. I put my hand on my mouth. And I trust You, O Lord. Are those meaningless statements or are they full of content intellectually? So that's the same thing we're doing here. We can't explain what's going on here, but we know one thing. There's not a conflict between those two. When we feel tension between statement one and statement two, the problem is that we're loading them with identity. And when we load them with identity, we're crisscrossing the creative creature boundary. We're doing exactly what Aristotle did. And we can't do that. Logic breaks down when you do that. You get, you do get conflicts. You really do. But our answer—that's that's the same kind of thinking that says the Trinity can't exist, because how can you have one and three? God can't be three and be one. Come on. Well, what do we say as Christians? He's not three and one in the same way. Now I don't know the different ways. Sorry. So that's Trinitarian logic. It's not irrationality. It's not existentialism. So what we're trying to do here in this impeccability is simply to describe the fact that in God's sovereign plan it wasn't part of the plan for Jesus to fail. And God's sovereign plan is perfect. And it was never going to be compromised. It was never going to be twisted, turned, or any other thing. And yet there was a reality that was conceivable. Because what does Jesus say? Do you not know that I could pray and there would be thousands of angels here? So you could say, well, that's kind of an option, isn't it? I mean, it's a conceivable option. We're not denying that He faced the temptation to do that. What we're denying is that He ever would do that. There's a difference. And I'll tell you why. This is not just theology. In the New Testament, there's a passage, which is in the notes we handed down, that will blow your brains out if you, and, and everybody slips on it and does everything. There are several passages in the New Testament that when Christ's life is imparted to the believer, there are statements that go like this. He cannot sin because God's seed abides in him. Uh-oh. Now what are we going to do? Now we've got the same problem. We didn't solve it when we started talking about Jesus, so now we're in the New Testament epistles, and here we go. Now we bang. We get hit with it in 1 John 3. Now what do we do with it there? So that's why I say, you have to work through this thing, and it's not easy, and it doesn't come overnight. I mean, that, what we talked about tonight, would take a whole semester in theology. Talk about all the fun And then the guys at the final exam are still going like this. These, I don't know. So don't feel bad. What I'm saying is I'm presenting you with a discussion. This is what real people have debated down through church history. And I've told you my conclusion to it. Nobody's going to get excommunicated because they don't agree with me. I'm just saying that that I believe that if you don't hold to that position, you may think you've solved the problem and it resurfaces and bites you later on. And we'll see that in the fall, particularly when we deal with this nasty thing with we're talking about the limited atonement, the unlimited atonement, and it turns out both sides have a point here. They really do. So you have to kind of thread your way carefully through these things before you leap one side or the other. Usually, when good Christians that are biblical students debate this kind of a question, and there's Usually a logic and a linguistic problem is going on. It goes back to what Debbie said. Sometimes the language we use to state things is really misleading us because of the baggage we have up here with those words. See? Anyway, this will give you something to chew on. (laughs)